Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, with everything that made this week the one they're already calling Week 22. This week we're summoning a gathering of the over-70s art collective called Nakailika. We share the joy with the Irish winner of the Global Fantasy Premier League 2021. The American duo Ten String Symphony gear up for a virtual tour of Ireland and Una Monaghan gathers the story of women's experience in traditional music, but we begin this time with Nikailika. Who was in your pod? Ideally, you took full advantage of the past year to team up with like-minded creatives, spurring each other on to more profound working and being... Okay, that's not how things worked out for everyone, but for one group of older women artists, filmmakers and curators, lockdown was the force majeure that bound them together at the Ballinglen Arts Foundation. The result is a new collective, Nakailika, which works collaboratively to explore witches and wise women in contemporary society, creating art and friendships within the group and outside of it with the likes of Gorilla Girls. Rachel Andrews summoned a manifestation. Once we came together and once it was clear that we were all women and we were all more or less over 70, the focus was what is different about our work from other groups and other collectives. And it is, of course, that we're women and that we are of a certain age and that we are, you know, interested in exploring what kind of issues ageing brings with it. My name is Catherine Marshall. I'm a curator and an art historian and writer. We also decided we needed a name for, for the group. We very quickly picked on the word Nikailika, or at least the witches or Nikailika as the Irish form of it. We wanted it to be clear that we were Irish as well, I suppose. Um, although we're not all Irish, actually, we're quite a cosmopolitan bunch. We decided to call ourselves Nikailika because it's a way of embracing being older and all the things that go with connotations and assumptions about older women. That we're nuisances, that we interfere in people's lives, that we are invisible, and also that we have some powers that maybe we shouldn't have. Almost from the first day we met in Ballon Glen, which was the first time some of us had ever met other members of the group, we, we just very quickly recognised that there was something special about all of us being together that was much different to the sum of all our individual parts. And it had to do with the fact that we were coming from such different practices and backgrounds, and yet we, what we shared was attitudes to visibility, to ageing, to health, to fears of, you know, diminishing faculties and mortality even, you know. My name is Terry Rudden. I'm an artist, filmmaker. What happened is when lockdown in 2020, as you know, it eased off and it started off that we could travel again. Uh, we, we looked at Ireland. What could we, how could we meet in Ireland? And Balling Glen is something who, who came up. It really brought us together uh, and it really gave us a, an amazing experience. I think we will carry that with us uh, for a long time, but also I think it will help us to progress where we go from, from now after. 
we have done the first exhibition. We made a print portfolio between us. Everybody made a print, whether we were visual artists or not. As we started to do collective work like that, it became really clear. We had to have some sort of collective manifestation of it. And, um, and of course, another thing is, while we were in, in Ballinglen, we also did a series of public engagements, you know, in the form of, we call them afternoon tea sessions, where in groups we talked to the public and made art, in fact, with members of the public who came in. And we also had a, a symposium in Ballina. And so then the next stage was to start to think about exhibitions. So South Tipperary Art Centre in Clonmel offered us an exhibition immediately. Um, so our very first exhibition will be there. And it, it is called Nikailika, the age of reason and unreason, because we're bringing together those very opposites that people talk about, rationality, the instinctive for emotional creativity. We're very keen on the idea that creativity is another word for play, free play, which children do very well. And sometimes they work through very serious issues in their lives through play, but we wanted to do that too. My name is Carol Nelson and I am a musician and composer. I went with a very open mind. I was delighted to be invited. I mean, what had seemed, you know, with lockdown happening, like life closing in, no concerts, no tours, no blah, blah, blah. Suddenly there was this opening up into a completely different world for me. So where I show up <laughs> is, um, well, Terry made a documentary of a performance piece that we did. And the other thing that I only just saw myself yesterday is Barbara Freeman's um, film that she's made called Seven Voices, uh, which is just a stunning piece of work. And I've contributed to the soundtrack on that. And uh, in fact, what I did when I was in Ballinglen was I just recorded lots of very random abstract music and gave it to her and said, fly with that just work with that if it if it speaks to you use it if it doesn't don't but she has used it almost entirely throughout this 30 minute film and in, in really marvelous creative ways that perhaps i wouldn't have had the courage to go down she, she barb is very immersed in, in um uh, in contemporary art music she just has a lot of courage in, in kind of dissonance i suppose You know, the Gorilla Girls had this famous poster in the 1990s called The Advantages of Being a Woman Artist. Well, we are, with their complete support and permission, producing our version of that for older women. But it will be The Advantages of Being a Kyluck Artist. And the title was their suggestion because they said, said you know, that would nail it as, a, as an Irish response to um, their original poster. So we hope that we'll have that ready in June. Then we're going to do a conversation with them when we're in Ballon Glen again this summer. We're just very keen to connect with feminist groups in particular, wherever they are. So it's not just nationally. For most of the human experience, elders have been regarded with respect and as embodying wisdom for the tribe, for the community, for the people. And of course that's been lost in our world. And maybe we're not so quick on Instagram and maybe we don't use TikTok. But I think we have other things to say.
Members of Nikailika there talking to Rachel Andrews and Nikailika's group show is at South Tipperary Arts Centre Clonmel from where it's available to view online. Next, touring the country, though also not touring the country at the moment, are Ten String Symphony, a rootsy American duo whose sound performs the equally agile trick of leaning backwards and forwards at the same time. Grammy-nominated fiddler Christian Sedelmeyer and singer-songwriter fiddler Rachel Bayman were due to bring their electro-infused bluegrass for an Irish visit this month. Funny story, you'll never guess what happened. Instead, they hooked up with Music Network Network and recorded a concert for Irish audiences in their hometown of Nashville. That show goes live tonight, and ahead of that, they spoke to Culturefile about their five string fiddles, about working with members of Scottish folk innovators Lau, and how to make virtual touring authentic. Hey, I'm Rachel Bayman, and I'm one half of Ten String Symphony. My name is Christian Suttlemeyer, and I am one half of Ten String Symphony. When the train has left the station, go chasing down those tracks. They stretch out long as you desire. We both play five string fiddles. The name of the band is just a, a play on adding the two fives together. Uh, and, and then the symphony portion is more like conceptual. Our concept when we originally started this band was that we would try and create the widest, fullest sound that we could with just our two voices and our two instruments. And we like alliteration, so 10 string symphony. constraints out of necessity. I mean, we were both fiddle players primarily at this time and really interested in developing different techniques that we could do with those instruments. You know, what? how could we push the boundaries of what was possible with fiddles? And the five-string fiddle already was, you know, pushing that boundary in terms of adding that lower range, the C-string. So it was just the instruments that we played and we thought, well, how can we make a band out of this? Our goal was that you wouldn't feel like there was anything missing in the band. fiddles that we play and and the size of them I'm not entirely certain of the origin but I do know that something similar that maybe had a slightly larger body was even around in like box time um, and he used a five string sort of ch- cello like instrument uh, for some of his writing in American fiddle culture you know for example Bobby Hicks uh, is a great bluegrass fiddle player played one in the 60s i was inspired um by britney haas's five string and i think a lot of more old-time leaning players were as well i know tatiana hargraves was playing one and it's just become more common recently 
running around this dirty old town, hustling, getting things done. First we met, I've been willing to bet you find us at the five having fun. Now we're so busy life in the city, chasing those plans we made. Because there wasn't necessarily a blueprint for two five-string fiddles and, you know, vocals, you know, in, in the fo in the folk world, it was more sort of like, okay, what can we draw upon from our past experiences and musical sensibilities to date. On our most recent album, we, um, we worked with Chris Strever of the band Lau, and one of the reasons that we wanted to work with him is because we were really fascinated by the way that they had melded folk music and folk instruments with more electronic sounds, and they had this way of doing it, well they have, continue to have this way of doing that, which feels like something brand new. It doesn't feel like, you know, taking strings and putting them into an electronic tune or marring the raw, authentic feel of a traditional band. You know, they really have created a new sound and we wanted to kind of tap into that and see how they were doing that. So that's why we asked Chris to produce. Well, 2020 was a year, and um, you know we would we would have loved to come to Ireland. We were originally scheduled to play in May of 2020, and then the tour got rescheduled for May of 2021. And of course, uh, still not able to come and play. We'll come someday, and it'll be lovely then. But for now, we're uh, you know created this performance from one of our favorite venues to play at the station in in Nashville, um, and I think that's pretty cool that we can still connect this way with all the audiences. You know, in this time, I think that obviously everybody in the music world has had to rethink their relationship to the ways that we did a lot of things. And I think that when touring and live shows do come back, I think that a lot of what we've learned and how to, you know, create and get our music to people over the, this past year and change, I think that a lot of that is going to be integrated into the future. And I'm pretty excited for that. The venue that we chose... For this particular performance that will be broadcast, the station in in Nashville, which is a, a world famous bluegrass venue, shows are very often acoustic, unplugged. They're just played into microphones, and so we kind of decided to to tap into that era of of playing live. It's a really interesting thing, authenticity in place, because I do feel like when I hear Lau's music, for example, it has this like intense grit and uh, snarl of Scotland with the electronics involved, you know, like it still captures that landscape for me and in a more kind of, to me, it's almost more authentic because you're not trying to romanticize the folk music and say like, oh, well, it's only real folk music when it existed pre-electronics. You know, like what about modern folk music? What about, you know, what about people today? What are they listening to? What are they thinking about? You know, what's the world? What's the folk music that we want to create today? I like finding that place where it does feel real and authentic and also modern and, and like a vibrant living tradition that encompasses all of those generations past and present. 
Rachel and Christian there of Ten Strings Symphony, and that home viewing tour can be booked at your local venue or via musicnetwork.ie. The Fair Play movement was founded in 2018 in the spirit of the times to focus on the gender deficit in Irish traditional music. But Una Monaghan, a harpist and researcher who was one of the founders of the group, discovered that trad appeared not yet ready for the reckoning that Me Too had inspired elsewhere. Often because the problems were not, it seemed universally acknowledged. So Monaghan began a three-year process of gathering and classifying stories that made clear what in quality in Irish traditional music looked like, as she explained to Culture Files Anya Gallagher. I've worked in the music industry for 20 years now and in many different roles, you know, both as a performer, a composer and a sound engineer and, you know, women are underrepresented in all of them. So yeah, there was a certain amount of lived experience, there was a certain amount of learning how to exist in those worlds in a way that was going to enable me to be able to work in them. It really became obvious to me, and especially other people who work freelance will understand this as well, that, you know, if your work depends on networks of people and on making connections with people and, you know, relationships, really, if you have a problem in that world and and it's one that is met with opposition, then it becomes harder to, to work out what to do about it. In early 2018 then, the Fair Play movement started, and that was partly related to the global events of the time there had been women's movements and the Me Too movement. And so the Fair Play movement was a parallel movement to many other ones that were happening around the world, specifically focused on traditional and folk music in Ireland. I was involved in Fair Play at the start and it became clear to me because of the reaction that we had that this wasn't going to be a straightforward situation where we spoke about our experiences and people responded positively. It really wasn't what happened, unfortunately. There were people who didn't agree. There were people who didn't experience some of the things we were talking about, men and women, um, who said, you know, I've been working in traditional music for many years. I've never experienced what you're talking about. I don't understand it and I don't recognise the experiences that you're explaining. People want evidence. So it became clear to me that I would have to not only gather this information in a systematic way, but also that one person's experience while really important, was not enough to convince people. It became clear to me that we needed to have a range of experiences, not just so that the the scale of the problem, there'd be some sense of the scale, but also so that the nuance could be really understood because they're so nuanced and so complex and they're so hard to describe as being gender-related a lot of the time or prove as being related to gender that it's only when you take many of these stories together and you look for themes and connections between them that you can really understand that this is an issue and that it is exacerbated by gender. I had to do a really systematic, thematic analysis where I read all of the stories and I coded them all. So there were codes attached to each of these, you know, some related to expectations that were or assumptions that were made on on the grounds of gender and ways women were expected to dress some related to instruments you know that they would be assumed to be good at or not good at certain instruments Uh, flute bagpipes guitar so you know there were many different stories 
you know, some of the media and the responses to this have been based around the most extreme examples of abuse, um, which do occur and which are really damaging. But they make up a smaller number of the codes in these stories. The greatest number are around things like emotional labour, so where there is extra kind of work, mental load, um, to be involved in and exist in the, the music scene. The stories came up about sessions, you know, to go into the the environment of a session, which is historically started in pubs at a time when women didn't go to pubs. It was kind of unacceptable space for them to be in. And that was the environment in which sessions started at the end of the 20th century. So there are ways in which that the, those roots of sessions has kind of carried over, and, and some sessions can be places where you can feel uncomfortable or unwelcome, really. Uh, that there are hierarchies of power within the session. Many, many sessions are run by men, and there are, seem to be fewer sessions around the country where the person running the session is, is mm. a woman. I can remember actually going to sessions when I was a kid and finding them, yeah, pretty nerve-wracking in general, which definitely still carries. Um, but there was one that I went to in the Snug in Hughes Pub in Smithfield years ago, and it was an all-women session. And... The atmosphere was just so different. Of course, it's always going to be different when it's separate genders and uh, segregated in that way, but it was without a lot of that kind of extra added stress that a lot of them carried. Yeah, it's really hard to define that or to put your finger on it or to explain why. You know, people rightly, whenever you bring up these topics in traditional music, they want to know exactly what you're talking about and why and, and how this kind of problem is defined and it's really hard to explain that in a short succinct way you know it took me asking for these stories to be sent in then a lengthy analysis that the work took three years and then to write uh, in a way that was clear and that really brought home the nuance and the complexity and the fact that it builds up over time this problem was shown to be present across all contexts in Irish traditional music which is in a way depressing, but it also means that every single person involved in Irish traditional music, men and women, can affect change. Una Monaghan there talking to Culture Files, Anya Gallagher, and 121 Stories, The Impact of Gender on Participation in Irish Traditional Music is available online now. And finally, this time on the Culture File Weekly, celebrating a great Irish sporting triumph with Michael Coon. The English Premier League climax with Manchester City taking the top spot. But that's basically irrelevant. The real excitement was in the Fantasy Premier League, where it was down to the last kick for the 8 million global Fantasy League managers. When the final whistle blew last night, Galway's Michael Coon was crowned the Fantasy Premier League world champion. 
He's with Gary now. So congratulations. And this is the post-match interview. And what, what a fantastic achievement for you and all the lads. Oh, thanks a million, Luke. Yeah, no, it was fantastic. It was a great day. Now, I had a look on, look on my side yesterday, so I was thrill, thrilled absolutely that everything came off. It was very tight in the top 10 people. And we're talking about the top 10 people all over the world, 8.3 million people who are in your league with you. Yeah. And you're up in the top 10 of it to begin with this week. Yeah, I know. It was incredible. So I went in. I have I have been probably in the top three for the last probably about nine, ten weeks. But uh, yeah, so I went into the last, last day, Sunday, uh, third, and I had a nine point deficit to make up from the first place player and then an eight point from second. So um, I had to take a few risks. Um to, to, to kind of bridge the gap and, and overtake them, which I did. And they all they all luckily uh, came out for me on the day. Your big tactical risk was that a lot of people were saying Mo Salah is going to really put the effort in to win the golden boot, but you didn't make him your captain. So you didn't get the double points from him. Absolutely, yeah. So I think that was my key decision. Like, I think he was the obvious pick. I was looking through the the teams of the the uh, of the players that were ahead of me. So um, first place probably had a a team that I didn't think was was too problematic. But but second place team was very similar to my team, and I didn't think I'd I'd overtake him unless I made some differences between the two teams. And and I thought he would go for Salah. I think he was the obvious the obvious choice. But uh, I had gone for Salah on Wednesday night and I was watching the game and I, I was watching the game and, and Sadio Mane was playing well and he, he didn't do great either, but he, he had a few chances and I, I could see the potential of him going well this weekend. So does Mane know what he's done for you? Have you been in touch? <laughs> I, I've tweeted and I've, I've linked him on the tweet. Uh, it would be amazing if he got back to me, but uh, I definitely think I'm going to buy a jersey with his name on it just to, to put up on the wall or something. But um, it, it would make my day if he actually uh, he actually tweeted back to me. What kind of um, efforts do you have to put in into it? That you know, like what what's the training behind uh, yeah. this successful team? Yeah, so I've I've played the game for a number of years and I haven't really done that well. This is the first year I've done so well. Like um, I've always probably started tried my best and uh, picked picked an initial team and then when I started falling away I probably uh gave up effort into it um this year obviously there was I suppose there was less distractions with with COVID there was less things on and less uh, so I, I had more time to focus on watching the soccer and less less other things to go out and, and I suppose I, I, I had more time to put time into it but when I around January time I was um I was getting very close to the top of Ireland and that's when I really decided to push, put focus into it. But it's all in your head because, you know, a lot of these where in America where the fantasy football is very developed, people, yeah. it's all algorithms and yeah, Excel yeah. spreadsheets. Yeah. You, oh, there's, a, there's incredible um, websites with stats and all the stats you could imagine on this. Um, I didn't really um, use, like I didn't really delve into that, that level of detail for it. From my point of view, I was more watching the games and seeing who was going to who's going to actually start playing well. You're an old-fashioned type manager. It's a gut game for you. It's yeah, not all stats. Yeah, yeah, like you're watching the like so you really the key to winning it is get get on the like so when the stats stats start coming in for a player, everyone's going to start buying that player. What you need is to have that player two or three weeks before stats start getting good that everyone has them. How important has it been to have this uh, game going on through COVID for you? No, it's great. It's great. Like I I love um like I love playing like my five-a-side soccer games that all got cancelled on me. Uh, all the like social life, all the like going to gigs, going to matches, going to shows, going to all that kind of stuff got taken away. So, uh, absolutely, absolutely great distraction, a great a great pastime. It, it got me really involved in it. I was actually um, due due to get married actually on Saturday, but we had to postpone the the wedding because of COVID. Um, so it would have been a would have been an entertaining uh, day two of the wedding if uh, if I had won it on the the day two. But um, 
something but, of a distraction, though. Yeah, no, I might, I mightn't have, I mightn't have worked, worked well, but um, and the stress, the stress would have been higher leading up to the wedding, which I didn't, didn't want, I suppose. So yeah, so we we'll moved that out to July. Fantasy leagues in general have become really popular, and and they they seem to be ever growing. Do you ever kind of uh, articulate to yourself like what it is that's attracting people to this game? What's attracting you to it? There's a big industry in this. Like, there's a lot of people that have full time jobs giving advice on on what they do and writing articles on it and. There's, there's a big there's a big market for this. Um, like you'll even see like that my Twitter followers are going through the the roof now. It keeps you interested for the full ninety minutes. So it's a very passive way of doing it. Like it doesn't involve gambling or money or anything. So it's just you're watching it for the excitement of just getting a few points and getting getting ahead of your your workmates or your friends in a, in a little mini league that you have. Um, or, or the eight million other people who are million. playing the game. <laughs> if, if it comes that way, yeah. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantasy Premier League world champion Michael Kuhn. Congratulations to him. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more imaginary athletics next Saturday tea time on RTE Lyric FM or anytime you want via podcast. Till then, bye now.